In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Much like last week's parable, today's parable speaks to this profound question that many of us struggle with. Now the problem that we heard about last week is the resistance that God's Word faces in this world. Now today's parable addresses this puzzle of why there is evil in the world. Not only are we puzzled by its presence, and rightfully so, but we also want to know what God intends to do about it. And I would submit to you that much like last week, Jesus' words today aren't going to be extremely satisfying to us right now. They're not going to help us tie up all of our loose ends. They aren't going to answer all of our questions. But Jesus has called us not to have it all figured out right now. He calls us to trust Him. Because He knows what He's doing. As I shared with the kids. I had them repeat that. Can you say Jesus knows what He's doing? Good, I don't do that very often, but that's what I want you to take away from this text today. And we're going to hear some more about these practical implications of what trusting that Jesus knows what he's doing. We're going to hear about some practical implications of that. But all of the parables in Matthew 13, there's several, they're all sandwiched between some really troubling events. We've got the arrest of John the Baptist in chapter 11, along with Jesus' pronouncement of woe on the unrepentant cities. We've got Jesus' teaching on the activity of the demonic forces in chapter 12, along with the divisions that Jesus exposed in his own family. So that's on one end. And oh, by the way, everything is bookended by Matthew 14. Once we get there, we have the beheading of John the Baptist. And uh, we've got Jesus being rejected in his hometown. So if these parables are like a jewel that we can admire, then the setting is trouble. Some of you ladies know what I'm talking about with your jewel. The jewel is one thing, but the setting is just as important, right? Because that's what kind of grabs you in. That's what pulls you in. That's what kind of displays the diamond itself. So if the parables are the jewel, then the setting is trouble. Now in today's gospel reading, Jesus preached to the crowds by the sea, telling them about how the kingdom is like a man who planted seeds of wheat in his field. But an enemy came and planted other stuff while the, men's, the, the man's servants were sleeping. And when the servants noticed that the weeds were growing alongside the wheat, they asked their master about it, seeing that they had seen him only plant good seed. And the master responded that it was not he who sowed the weeds, but that this was an enemy. And so they had a really pious response to that. They said, okay, well, do you want us to go deal with that? Do you want us to go pull up the weeds? And the master's reply, I know that most of us are probably familiar with this parable, but the master's reply should surprise us. He said, rather than risk tearing up the wheat alongside the weeds, servants were to do nothing. 
But wait until the harvest comes, when the reapers would know clearly what was what. The weeds would be burned, but the wheat would be gathered into the barn. Now in our text, Jesus tells his disciples what this parable means. Whenever Jesus told them the meaning to the parable last week, the parable of the sower, it was because they came and they asked him about why he used parables. Okay? So they didn't come to him and say, Lord, teach us about the parable of the sower. No, what they did is they came to him and they said, why do you use parables? And so he told them why he used parables, so that he uh, could both hide and reveal God's truth, hide from the unrepentant, but reveal to those who cried out to him for mercy. But then he took that opportunity to show them how the parable works. And so he taught them, he decoded the parable of the sower, used it as an example. But for today's parable, the reason why Jesus tells them the meaning is because they came to him and they asked him about this one. They wanted to know what it meant. They were troubled about it. They said, hey, that doesn't sound all that positive. That doesn't sound all that nice. What do you mean by that, Jesus? I noticed something similar with my daughter. Whenever we're doing catechesis or Bible readings or devotions, whenever there's any mention of hell, death, the evil one, stuff like this, she always has questions. This is the stuff she wants to ask about. And I think it's the same with us today. This kind of stuff piques our curiosity. We, and this is one of the reasons we've got such a fascination with the book of Revelation, right? In every church, there's always someone who wants to study the book of Revelation or hear it preached from the pulpit. Um, and it's because we want to know what we're supposed to make of it all. What are we supposed to do with all this fire and brimstone? What are we supposed to do with the dragons and the beasts and angels and demons, heaven and hell? And if that's you today, if you've got questions about the book of Revelation, come find me after the service. I've got resources. I don't want to leave your questions unanswered. Also, go check out our podcast. Last year during the Easter season, we did a whole sermon series on Revelation. Go check it out. If you've got questions, come let me know. But in terms of all this fiery stuff, that's what the disciples were hearing in this parable. They wanted to double check to make sure they understood Jesus, to make sure that they knew what he was getting at. And like us, whenever we hear these themes, they wanted to know whether they were on the right side of it all. That's why my daughter is interested. That's why you're interested. Because you need to know. If that's true, then where do I stand? So Jesus went on to explain that the sower, the one who plants the good seeds, is Jesus. He calls himself the Son of Man. And the seeds, in this case, are the sons of the kingdom. They are Christians who cling to Christ by faith. The weeds, however, he says that the weeds are sons of the devil the wicked, and the unrepentant. The field is the world, and the harvest is the close of the age. 
And the reapers are the angels who will, who will at the Lord's command gather the wicked and unrepentant to be burned and the righteous into the new heavens and earth. So what was Jesus saying exactly? What was he teaching? He was not saying that the disciples needed to get their act together and decide whether they were seeds or wheat. He was saying this to assure them of their place in his kingdom. The Son of Man was the one who called them, after all. He alone sows the good seed, the wheat. But they would face opposition. They would face the weeds who were sown by the devil. They would face the wicked and unrepentant. They would face enemies of the church. And things were going to get rough because of such people. As they go about their ministry, the heat just gets, it keeps getting cranked up. And it doesn't really change after Jesus dies and rises again and ascends into heaven. The persecution gets ramped up. So what was the solution? This is a problem, right? There's weeds out there in the field. They grow up alongside the wheat. They have this, uh, this harmful effect on the wheat. What is the solution? Should they take up a crusade against all evil in the world and try to eliminate it all? No. And the reason is, is because that they are woefully unqualified. There is only one into whose hands has been given all judgment. Jesus Christ, who shall come to judge the living and the dead, as we confess in the creed. And he has said that he will deal with evil in all of its totality at the final judgment. At the coming of Jesus with all his angels and with all those who have died in the faith, he will raise you and I and all the dead. Then he will put everything to rights. Then he will set it all straight. The wicked will be taken away into everlasting torment and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father because Jesus shines like the sun in the kingdom of his father. And this raises another question. If you're paying attention, how could a loving God send people to hell? So at first we ask, why is there so much evil in the world? And what is God going to do about it? And then when he tells us, we go, well, why would you send so many people to hell? It's almost as if God can't win with us. We want a God who deals with evil in the world. We want a God who will give us justice. And when God shows us true justice, we say, not like that. We accuse God of being unfair or inconsistent, and we kind of nod ourselves into a pretzel to do it. I would say, brothers and sisters, we're best off just hearing Jesus' words about this sort of thing, and we're best off just living with it. We're best off doing what Jesus tells us to do until the harvest comes because you and I are woefully unqualified to deal with this. So I told you that the solution to our problem might be unsatisfying right now. 
Jesus isn't interested in giving you a satisfying answer to this. There's evil in the world. God knows. Well, he's not putting an end to it. He will. What are you and I supposed to do until then? Wait. And what does this waiting look like? You and I live with the effects of evil every single day, whether it's on a global geopolitical scale or whether it's on a personal scale. There's always someone or something out there that wants to hurt or harm us in any way that, in any way that it can simply because you're a Christian or simply because you're standing there or simply because you got the wrong skin color or, or whatever nonsense. What do we do about this as Christians? Only so much. The field is the world. And we are called to work for the good of our neighbor with respect to our vocations. The government exists to ensure order and justice in our society. The military and law enforcement are institutions that are authorized by God to protect us from evildoers, both foreign and domestic. They can impose God's will to an extent, but they cannot remove evil completely. And the second that they think they can, they overstep the authority they've been given. You ever seen that movie Minority Report? Okay, totally glazed over eyes right now. Okay, never mind. Bad example. Whenever a government thinks that it can act in such a way that it can remove evil completely, it ends up being evil. That's the idea. Because we are woefully unqualified to do this. Likewise, because the church exists within the world, the church on earth will always have in her midst false Christians, hypocrites, and evildoers. So Jesus is called to, don't look at your neighbor, by the way, uh, but Jesus' call to wait is not a license for laziness or for permissiveness. That's not what this is. So in other words, if we have someone in our congregation who is openly evil and, and, and insists on living in unrepentant sin, the Bible prescribes that we remove them from our fellowship. However, the second that we think that we can achieve some type of institutional purity, a, a pure institutional church on earth, we've missed what Jesus is saying. We cannot go around implementing tests or procedures that will remove all hypocrites from our midst. The Roman church tried that for centuries with a thing called the Spanish Inquisition. Go look into that. It had extremely harmful effects and it destroyed the church's witness because in, in attempting to pull out all the weeds, they did a lot of damage to the wheat as well. So what is faithful waiting? Let me give you two applications that emerge from this parable. First, you learn to pray. Our epistle lesson from this morning in Romans 8 talks about how creation itself groans for the day when it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. 
And then it goes on to say that not only does creation do this, but we ourselves who have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit who groans within us, who empowers and emboldens us to call upon our God in prayer. We groan. We pray. We wait patiently for the longed-for day whenever Jesus will come and set everything to rights. And when I say pray here, I am implying everything that that entails. Your Christian life, which is bathed in the rhythm of prayer. Joining your voice with the church, learning the language of prayer in the scriptures and in the catechism. For example, in the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer, we pray, deliver us from evil. What are we asking God to do there for us? We're asking him to let nothing bad happen to us on account of evil in the world. And finally, when our last hour has come, grant us a Christian death. Learn the church's song. Learn the psalms through which she cries out to God. And then bring all of that into your daily life from the breakfast and dinner tables to the bedside, to our children and our spouses, to our neighbors who need it. Faithful waiting means a life of patient prayer. The second thing that is implicated in this parable is that we we demonstrate waiting through our commitment to holiness of living, which is what we prayed in our collect this morning. You see, there was a hot moment in my sermon this morning where you questioned whether or not you were a weed. And the reason that that bothers you, the reason that you have that question is because you're not a weed. If you didn't have that question, by the way, go ahead and take this opportunity to ask yourself and you can catch up. Good. You're the seed sown by the sower himself, the son of man. Jesus has sown you as the good seed in that he has redeemed you from sin, death, and the devil. And he is the one who promises to come for you and gather you into his barn, completely removed from the presence of evil, from the presence of your sin, and from the presence of the sins of the world. And because that's true of you, because it's true of you here and now, You live like it. Yes, you've got evil in you. It's called the sinful nature. You will wrestle against it until you die. But you also have the Holy Spirit who is greater than your sinful flesh. And because you've been baptized with the Spirit, it means that the sinful nature in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Man, that's a great statement. Where did I get that? Small catechism. This is what our faith teaches us. That we have the Holy Spirit who affects these things in our lives. Who restrains the sinful nature within us. Who cries out within us 
that he groans along with the creation and he enables us to pray in this way. The reason that God's word calls you to persistence in prayer and holiness of living is because you are the good seed sown in God's field. I'm not prescribing this to you so that you will become the good seed. The parable doesn't say anything about becoming. You just are. You are. You are the work of Jesus, your Redeemer, who has bled and died for your sins on the cross so that he will declare you righteous and he has risen again to give you the Spirit as a down payment of the future redemption of your body and soul when he's going to gather you to himself on the last day. Whatever evils exist in this world, whatever evil afflicts you today, whatever evil troubles you in the world today, know that your king is coming to exact his justice. He is coming to deliver you from all evil. And even now, he holds you in his powerful hands. So we can wait until the harvest comes because on that day, on that day, we're not going to ask, what are you doing about evil? On that day, we're not going to ask, what took you so long? On that day, we will say, right on schedule. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.